Well, as we, uh, as I get started this morning, I wanted to just quickly draw attention to the fact that uh, the the most senior member of our congregation has a birthday today, and I'm not going to tell you how old she is because I'm probably going to be in enough trouble already just for pointing this out, but uh, uh, Eileen Springer has, uh, has a birthday today, and, and, and due to COVID and, and, and just some of uh, some other health concerns, she hasn't been able to be here with us in person for a little while now, but, uh, but she's faithful to, to join with us online uh, each Sunday. So I, Eileen just wanted to let you know uh, we're thinking about you this morning. Uh, hope you have a, uh, a wonderful birthday, and I'm sure you'll uh, let me know later how much trouble I'm in. So... <laughs> So that being said, uh, I was thinking uh, this uh, past couple of weeks, um, uh, some of my favorite movies growing up were uh, the Back to the Future movies starring Michael J. Fox. Those were some that I grew up with. And, uh, you know, stories involving time travel, I think, are, are it's just something that, that fascinates uh, um, a lot of people, uh, you know, me being one of those. It's fun to think about how it would work to go travel either into the past or into the future. Um, and hypothetically, were that possible, of course, when you would do that, you would find yourself just by nature of what you're doing out of your context. Uh, you'd probably be a little bit uncomfortable, be out of your comfort zone going to a different time in history. And in, you know, in those Back to the Future movies, the, there's one scene where Marty McFly goes 30 years into the future and uh, he's kind of just wandering around the town uh, there, just taking in all the futuristic sights. He's observing things in the town that just aren't normal for him as a teenager 30 years before that time. Uh, and then on the flip side of that, there's, there's time where he travels back into the future, uh, back into the past, 30 years. And uh, when he does that, he's got, you know, these gadgets from the future that he's taken back with him. And then at one point, he's got this video camera, and there's a scene where he's showing Doc Brown something on the video camera. And Doc Brown is just, he's just, uh, he marvels at the fact that encapsulated within this video camera, is an entire film studio. I mean, it just fascinates him to think how that could work. Um, and it's an object that, you know, for Marty was just pretty run of the mill, just a standard 1980s video camera. But, but for Doc Brown back in the 50s, it's wow, it's crazy. And, you know, you think about uh, smartphones today. If I were to take this back 30 years into the past, Boy, people would be blown away with what it could do. You know, all the, I mean, you got a whole film studio in this thing right here, much less everything else that it does. But it's kind of commonplace today, right? We're so used to it. We don't really think about it anymore. And it, I'd say regardless of when we live in history, we, we can just start to take things for granted. We just become so used to them. They're kind of part of daily life. We're accustomed to them. Um, things that maybe once fascinated us and left us in awe kind of lose our attention as we get more and more used to them. And that's true for objects, things like smartphones or video cameras or things like that, but I think it's true for other things as well. For example, God's love. That's what we'll be talking about today, God's 
love. Not something that's necessarily complex. It's not an abstract concept that requires us to deeply think about it in order to make sense. I mean, we, we, I think we get what love is, and yet it's worth studying today because I think if we're not careful, we can, we can run the risk of taking it for granted and, and just becoming so accustomed to it that it becomes ordinary and, and our attention gets diverted from it. So that's kind of going to be the goal this morning. You know, at this point in our sermon series, we've spent three months now looking at the first three chapters of Genesis. And so you maybe talk about something becoming familiar. Uh, what I want to do this morning is challenge us to look at these three chapters with fresh eyes, even though we've been starting from here every week for three months, uh, to really kind of see it in a new way this morning. And, and maybe the best way to have those fresh eyes is to attempt to put ourselves in the Garden of Eden in the place of either Adam or Eve. So if we do that and, and we think about what we're told in Genesis, chapter 1, uh, of course, gives us that ordered description of God's creative work. In the beginning, there was nothing but God, and then from him came forth everything that exists. So the creation of the cosmos and the oceans and land and trees and fish and birds and animals, and it was, of course, all capped off by creation of mankind. And we're told specifically that mankind was specially created in the image of God. Adam and Eve came into existence knowing that they were different from the rest of creation. That was communicated to them. They were charged by God to rule over creation in a place of authority. They, they were to care for creation and see that it flourished. And in addition to being created different from creation, they were blessed with God's presence in a way in which the rest of creation was not. The garden in which they dwelled was a type of tabernacle, like we talked about a while back, a place where God himself dwelled with them. They related to God in a way which nothing else in creation did. They, uh, God revealed himself to them in a way in which he didn't do for the rest of creation. They, they were given commands from God, which we don't see him doing for other things in creation. And so it's, un it's unquestionable that Adam and Eve are not just different from creation, but they are special within creation. And I'd say it's for that reason that Satan zeroes in on them rather than something else in creation. And, and so we've spent the last few weeks here looking at Satan and sin and temptation, the very good, the, the perfect world which Adam and Eve inhabited was about to be introduced to destruction. Although God created Adam and Eve in his image and, and cared for them and dwelled with them, they were faced with temptation from Satan. And that temptation, of course, was to rebel against God, to, to go their own way. And, and, and even though there was a little bit of resistance initially, uh, they eventually succumbed to that temptation and sinned against their loving creator. Things like death and shame and pain and destruction were, were introduced into their lives 
and into their relationships and into all of creation. And, and we see that to today, don't we? But what I want to do is focus on the relationships there. Now, now the Bible doesn't tell us exactly how much time transpired in between the point when Adam and Eve sinned, when they ate the fruit, and the point when God came calling for them in the Garden of Eden. We're not sure how much time was in there. Um, it's obviously enough to make garments out of fig leaves. We know they did that. But the specific amount of time, we just don't know. But however long it was, I'd be confident that they had time to think about what just happened. That fruit that they had just eaten, the, the rebellion that they had just taken part in. They had time, I think, to dwell upon the decision that they had just made and the ramifications of that decision. And, and one of the things that they must have been thinking was, what's God going to think? Now that we've done this, now that we've eaten from this tree that we weren't supposed to and they felt shame, what's God going to think about this? What's God going to say when we see him? What's God going to do in response to what we have just done? And, and I would say that, that that's no different than the questions a child thinks about when they break a rule and they know that their parents are going to find out about it. I'd say it's no different than the questions we ask as adults when we do something wrong and we know we're going to have to own up to it and, and, and do so before our spouse or a boss or a friend or, or whomever it might be. I think we ask those same kinds of questions. And, and, and I think in that, Adam and Eve had to have been wondering, what does it mean for our relationship with God? What's it going to look like now, moving forward? And when they heard the sound of God then, walking in the garden, it seems like they're still uncertain, and they, they didn't know how things were going to unfold, so they, they ducked behind a tree. They hid themselves from God as he approached where they were. And so we're going to read right now just one verse from Genesis chapter 3. It's a verse that really doesn't seem overly theological in nature, but again, let, let's allow ourselves to, to see and hear this verse with those fresh eyes and ears, trying to put ourselves in that place with Adam and Eve. So Genesis chapter 3, verse 9, it says this, But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Where are you? Now, obviously, God knew where Adam and Eve were, right? They had not defeated God in the world's first game of hide-and-seek. That's not at all what was taking place here. So the question's not one. God's not seeking information. He knows where they are. I also don't think this question should be heard in a tone, and I purposely didn't read it this way, a tone that foreshadows punishment, so it's not like the scene where, where, where dad comes into the house and he knows that his son has done wrong and he loudly calls out, Junior, where are you? Right? It, it's not that kind of where are you. And, and, and the reason I think we can eliminate that, that tone is because of the name that is used for God. Okay, so if you go back to chapter 1, 
when God is referenced, it's with the Hebrew term Elohim, and, and it really is a, it, it's, it's a more generic name, which fits chapter one with the more impersonal description of creation in that chapter. And then once you get to chapter two, God is referenced as Yahweh Elohim, and in our Bibles, it's translated as the Lord God. Yahweh Elohim, and, and it's done in chapter 2 as the story of creation is told from a more personal and a more relational perspective. And so, of course, Yahweh was the, the personal, intimate name of God that was given to Moses in the burning bush. It's a name that indicates relationship. And so then we get to chapter 3, and it's interesting that when Eve and the serpent are having this conversation back and forth, they both use, they go back to that generic name for God, just Elohim. You notice that in chapter three. It's not, uh, uh, once you get halfway through verse one and they converse together, it's not the Lord God, it's just God. It's kind of a more impersonal, generic sense. I think what Satan, I think he's, it's on purpose, Satan's drawing God's love and care for Eve into question, not just with what he's saying, the false claims he's making, but also with the name that he's using to refer to God. But once we get to chapter 3, verse 8, after the deed has been done, it switches back again. It's not the generic Elohim walking in the garden. It's the personal, intimate Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, that's coming. And, you know, Adam and Eve just treated God as if he was generic, as if he was impersonal by how they had sinned against him. And yet... God approached them as the personal, intimate Yahweh and calls out to him. That, that's why I don't think it's that, where are you, punishment tone. It's not angry father tracking down his son so he can dole out the punishment. It, it, it's an intimate God calling out to his children who are so scared that they've run and they've hidden from him. I think that's the tone that we take from this. God has every right to lead with punishment and anger, doesn't he? I mean, they broke his command. They sinned against him and against his character. But instead, he leads with love, and, and he leads with concern. And I think this is the first picture of unconditional love seen in the pages of the Bible. And, and when I say unconditional love, what, what I mean there is a love that is faithful, in a love that is steadfast and it's not predicated upon Adam and Eve living perfect lives free from sin. Now God's love for mankind has always been unconditional from the very beginning. It's not like it becomes that way here. But Genesis chapter 3 is the first point where mankind has done something to put it to the test, if you will. So the fact that God called out to them is a loving God who cared about them, even though they had sinned, proves something about his love here. That it's not, it's not conditioned based upon their obedience to him. His love for them was unconditional in that way. And I just, I wonder, what was it like for Adam and Eve once they realized that? What would that have been like? And it, it's... It's hard to know. We're not told specifically. And to be sure, there's still consequences for their sins, which are going to come, and, and the rest of chapter 3 talks about those. We know that God's discipline in their lives 
really was a further sign of his love for them. But their newfound sinfulness did not negate his love for them. I think that's the big takeaway from Genesis chapter 3, verse 9. God's love for them did not leave once they fell into sin. So that's the first place that we see it in, in the Bible. But it's a picture that is not just relegated to the first three chapters. It, it, is, it is one that takes place all throughout the Bible. We are given example after example in the pages that follow. And so just to highlight, really just a couple of them, King David was, was one of those. He, he, he was one who knew sin. And of course, every person throughout history has known sin. But King David's w- was made a bit more public due to his position as king and the fact that it's recorded in the Bible and we're still reading about it and studying it today. But King David found himself guilty of both murder and adultery. And, and perhaps he wondered, he wondered if the promises that God had made to him were going to continue even after his failures. I mean, perhaps David wondered if God could still love him after all that he had done. Listen to David's testimony. This is from Psalm 103. Again, these are David's words, writing this, starting in verse 8. The Lord is merciful, gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is the steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Those are not the words of someone just writing about an abstract concept. Those are not the words of someone who hopes that what he says is true. Those are the words of someone who speaks from experience. God's unconditional love is not hypothetical in David's life. He he has experienced it firsthand. It is a reality which he unfortunately tested, but he found it to be firm. He can speak from experience that God's love is abounding, that he is abounding in steadfast love. We see that in the life of David. The book of Micah presents a similar situation, but from a national perspective. So listen to some of the statements made about God's people. I'm just going to read a few of these from the book of Micah. This first one is from chapter 2, and it says, Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it, because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them, and houses and take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. If I skip to chapter 3, verse 9, it says, Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, who detest justice 
and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads give judgment for a bribe, its priests teach for a price, its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. Uh, chapter 6, verse 10. Can I forget any longer the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked and the scant measure that is accursed? Shall I acquit the man with wicked scales and with a bag of deceitful weights? Your rich men are full of violence. Your inhabitants speak lies and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. Uh, skipping down to verse 16. For you have kept the statutes of Omri and all the works of the house of Ahab two of the worst kings in Israel's history. And you've walked in their counsel, that I may make you a desolation and your inhabitants a hissing, so you shall bear the scorn of my people. Chapter seven, verse two. The godly has perished from the earth and there is no one upright among mankind. They all, they all lie in wait for blood and each hunts the other with a net. Their hands are on what is evil to do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe, and the great man utters the, e the evil desire of his soul. Thus they weave it together. The best of them is like a briar, and the most upright of them a thorn hedge. I, I mean, just like with Adam and Eve, just like with King David, th there were consequences to these actions which the people received. But the fact that God loves sinners does, does not mean that he removes every consequence like we've seen here. Again, to, I think to do so would, would to be unloving. But in the midst of that, in the midst of a sinful nation that deserved the full nature of God's wrath to be poured out upon them, in the midst of that, this is how the book of Micah ends. It's truly incredible. Chapter 7, verse 18. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity, passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. I mean, these are the words of people who will see blessing once again because of God's love for them. And he says he will have compassion on them and he will tread their iniquities underfoot and he will cast all of their sins into the depths of the sea. That's incredible, isn't it? That's incredible when we think about it. But it's not just Adam and Eve. And it's not just King David, and it's not just the nation of Israel. It's you and I as well. We are recipients of God's love as well. And, and so what we're going to do is, is focus on four short passages from the New Testament. And again, these are verses that are probably very familiar for many of us. But as I read these out loud in a moment, and we're going to read through them two different times, let's seek to have fresh eyes on it and, and, and not, not be so accustomed to it that it becomes ho-hum, right? And so as we read through it this first time, let, let, let's really focus on 
the unconditional nature of God's love being described for us. So the first one, John 3.16, again, maybe the most famous verse in the Bible. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And so implied in that verse is that we are perishing from something. And, and you know, we know, and we talked about it in previous weeks, that, that, uh, that perishing in death is the direct result of sin. There's no secret of why we are perishing. It is the result of sin. We're sinful people, so we perish. This verse, however, states that God's love for us, God's love for the world, remains even though we are lost in sin and perishing in our sin. It's that unconditional love. Look forward with me at uh, Romans chapter 5. Romans 5, 8. It says, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And again, it communicates much the same thing as John 3, 16. God's love for us remains firm and unfailing even though we are sinners. His love does not stop because we are sinners. It continues on while we are sinners. That's incredible. I mean, that's what Adam and Eve experienced, King David experienced, the nation of Israel experienced. We get to experience that love of God as well. Look with me at uh, Titus. Titus chapter 3. This is chapter 3, starting in verse 3. It says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly, through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The, the first verse, verse 3 there, I mean, Paul spells out in detail his own sinfulness. He's talking about himself here. Foolishness, disobedience, malice, envy, hatred, among other things. But it was in the midst of those things then that the goodness and loving kindness of God appeared. You know, those things did not negate God's love in Paul's life. And then finally, if we look ahead at 1 John chapter 4. 1 John 4.10, and we read this verse earlier. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. I think John comes at it from two angles in this verse. Not, not only did we ourselves not love God, it's not about our love for him, but also then we are in sin. 
So we're sinners and, and we also don't love God, but in the midst of that, God loves us. Again, it's that, that unconditional love that's not tied to us living sinlessly. And, and, you know, like Paul had his list in Titus chapter 3, you and I might compile our own mental list of, of uh, sins that we've committed and wonder, uh, what's God's response to that? Huh? Well, what's God going to do? What's he going to say? Uh, you know, and our list might be even, even longer than the one that Paul had in Titus 3. These well-known verses leave no doubt that God's love for us is unconditional in nature. Uh, it does not depend on a lack of sinfulness within us. He, he loves us even though we are perishing in our sin. He loves us while we are still sinners. He loves us even when we bring that list of sins to him. He, he loves us even though our love for him did not come first, not even close. I mean, that, that is something that, that we cannot lose our sense of awe and wonder. We, we do not want to get to that place. Uh, you know, we, we might find it easy to relate to Adam and Eve hiding behind the tree, wondering, how's God going to react? How's he going to respond to me in my sin? He responds by calling out to us. His affection for us perseveres. It is faithful, even though we are lost in sin. I mean, that, that has to keep us in a place of awe and wonder. We don't want to become so accustomed to that, that it's no big deal, because that is a big deal. That's a very big deal. God's love is faithful, and it's steadfast. And so those four verses reveal that to us, but I want to read through those verses again and also focus on the fact that what we are talking about is love. It, it's, not, it's not something, it's not hope, it's not happiness, it's not anything else. It's, it's faithful love, steadfast love that we're talking about this morning. Genuine love reveals itself it, it, through the giving of itself for the benefit of others. And so what I want to do is read back through these, uh, through these verses one more time. And this time, let's focus on that, that active giving, that active sacrifice that, that's being referenced in each one of these. So in John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. God's love is shown to those who are perishing and that he gave his only son. I mean, we, we talked earlier in this series as well about the relationship that exists within the three persons of the Trinity. God the Father gave his only son in order that mankind might be brought into that relationship. And in order to do that, it was great sacrifice on his part. Great sacrifice. And the specifics of that sacrifice are given in more detail in Romans chapter 5. Romans 5, 8 again says, But God showed his love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So the, God's love is shown to sinners, and that the one and only Son, which was given for us, 
died for us. And there's no greater loving sacrifice than that, is there? There's no greater sacrifice than to give one's life for someone, which is what God did. So it's not just unconditional, it's unconditional love shown to us. And then again, in Titus chapter 3, because of that ultimate display of love, that ultimate sacrifice, we see that we're saved. Again, Titus 3, 3, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration, the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So many deep theological concepts that we could spend so much time exploring in that passage. God, God's goodness and loving kindness is shown and that those who are lost in sin are saved as a result and, and washed and regenerated and renewed and justified. And it's this incredible new reality for someone who was lost in sin, but it's a new reality that is only experienced and it's only possible because of God's love poured out upon us. And then finally, the last one in 1 John chapter 4. I think it just succinctly ties it all together. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And I'm sure propitiation is probably a word that we use every day in casual conversation, right? sometimes translated as atoning sacrifice uh, in other translations. It, it speaks of the sacrifice of Jesus upon the cross bearing God's wrath, that wrath uh, given for our sin. The wrath has been poured out upon Jesus and satisfied in full. So you want to talk about genuine love giving itself for the benefit of others we don't have to look any further than propitiation. Maybe that should be an everyday word that we use. You know, if we want to be even more blown away, we can't forget the fact that this verse tells us that Jesus did that not because we loved him first. It's because he loved us and he did that, came and sacrificed himself on the cross. And then our love came after that truly is incredible. I mean, it's no wonder that John went on to talk about how that love will impact our relationships with others when we accept it into our lives. That kind of love can't not change a person who opens themselves to it. It's what John spends so much time writing in, in, in 1 John. The the, the unconditional love of God is an incredible thing, and, and, and I would say it's so important and it's so foundational that we teach it to our children from an early age, don't we? We want them 
to grasp this unconditional love of God. And because we often hear about God's love from an early age, and because so many of us have probably accepted that love from an early age, we're prone to lose the awe and the wonder, aren't we? It, it can become commonplace. Maybe even those of us who, who came to faith in Christ as an adult could attest to that same thing. We get used to it. it. It just becomes part of the context in which we live. It just becomes part of our identity, who we are. And, and in some ways, that is a great thing. But in other ways, I want to spend time focusing on it so that we don't lose that awe and wonder, so that it never just becomes an ordinary thing in our lives. I, I, I know I need to have my awe and wonder renewed regularly. And if I, if I don't do that, I can become complacent, and I can become unthankful, and I can become hardened toward God, but, but toward others as well, because that impacts human relationships at the same time. I, and I, John goes on in verse 11, 1 John 4, 11, says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. The great thing he says, you know, if God so loved us, uh, God did so love us. He did so love us. He does so love me. What John writes about, what the New Testament talks about, what the entire Bible talks about is that God does so love us and he does so love me. His love is unconditional in the midst of my sin. It's sacrificial in response to my sin, and that's incredible. It, it really, truly is. May we never lose sight of that. May we never lose sight of that love and just how extraordinary it is in our lives, and may it may not just leave us in awe and wonder, but may it just permeate everything that we do, impact all of our relationships with others. May it become common within us, that it's just part of us, but may we always be in awe of it. I think that's, that's the prayer I have for myself and I have for all of us here as well. So would you stand with me? Let's come to God in prayer and give thanks for that love and also pray for that type of awe and wonder to remain in our lives. God, we, we come to you this morning humble. Um, like Adam and Eve, we've sinned, and that's a scary thing. And we could rightly wonder what that means for our relationship with you. But we are just so thankful that like you called out to Adam and Eve, you call out to us as well. You call out in love. You seek to bring us back to yourself. And thank you for that reality. God, because if that were not the case, then all of us here, we'd be lost. We'd be hopeless. We'd be sitting under your wrath. So God, we thank you for your love that saves us, that gives us new life. God, I pray that it would become part of our everyday lives, 
but that we would wake up every morning and walk through every day with the wonder of that. Even if we've been believers in you for 50 or 60 or 70 years or more, God, may we, may we continually be humbled as we think about your love for us. God, I have confidence that'll be our attitude for all eternity. I think we'll spend all eternity plumbing the depths of your love. So would you help us to do that here? God, may that attitude inform our worship and shape our worship and inform how we live as well, the conversations that we have with others, the ways in which we proclaim the gospel. We give you praise, God, and as we take time now to focus specifically on your love through singing worship to you, may you guide us in that. May you, may you reveal your love even more to us now as we think about it and the wonder of it. God, we, we thank you this morning that you are loving and that you are faithful, and we love you for it. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.